So Galatians chapter three, verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Fathers, we saw last week, your law has tremendous value and worth to us. But this morning, we pray that you would help our eyes and minds and hearts to understand as well that we do not rest our salvation in the law, but the pointer of the law to be toward your son. And so we pray that our hope would be found in Christ alone this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, 37 years ago, 1986, the many of you perhaps even had your eyes on the television. You're watching the Challenger space shuttle launch into outer space. And sadly, 73 seconds into the launch, um, fuel had been pouring down the side of the rocket and it came in contact with where the flames were and It was bathed in fuel and it blew and lost everyone on board, including a school teacher. And it it was a total tragedy. Uh, how, How did this happen? Well, you know, the scientists and the engineers that NASA hires, I mean, these are brilliant guys. They, they, they had done particular measurements. They were trying to figure out, you know, at what point would the, would the rocket, um, seal up? Uh, there's some rubber seals that would seal up into place and, 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 and this only happened within a particular temperature range. Now, these engineers, these scientists, they underestimated what the scope was of this temperature range. The temps were about 20 degrees cooler than they, than they uh, had guessed were the pr- appropriate levels. And so at the time, they thought, well, we, we feel pretty confident. We're going to move forward. And then this disaster struck. Now, you are aware that NASA they don't hire fools. I mean, the IQ of an engineer or a scientist working for NASA in that sort of field, I mean, they're they're 120. They They are approaching genius level IQ. So, what happens? I think I think the illustration goes to show you can be extremely smart and yet fooled on something. You could have, it, it, it is possible to be very, very smart, have a high IQ, and yet be fooled. Our passage in, in Galatians here in chapter three, it opens up with that. Oh, foolish Galatians. 
And, and here he's not insulting their intelligence. No, he's actually poking at their spiritual intelligence, their spiritual minds and hearts. Because it is possible for those who proclaim Christ to be led astray. To be intelligent yet duped. Not saying their IQ is low, but saying their spiritual IQ has been compromised. How did we get here? How do we get to this point where Paul's saying, you foolish Galatians? Well, Galatians, it was supposed to be all along grace through faith in Christ. But here it had, it had begun to be compromised. The Galatians were adding to the truth of Christ alone by saying, one must also be circumcised. So, where the early church is saying, Christ alone for your salvation, no, you must be under the Old Testament law, under Moses, circumcised. And 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 to this, he skips the formalities. In fact, in chapter one, uh, Paul doesn't begin with, I'm, I love you guys so much, everything's great, everything's hunky-dory. No, he actually says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly turning aside from this Jesus. And then in chapter three here, he says, how foolish are you? And the movement then that we're looking at this morning is verses one through five, we get a strong rebuke against the Galatians. Then in in verse six, we'll see the reminder and verses six and following. So first a rebuke, verses one through five, then the reminder six and following. So looking at the rebuke, let's look at verse one again here. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And when he says, who has bewitched you? It's, it's literally, who cast a spell on you? You've been bewitched. Who cast this upon you? And then he says, uh, you, you know, it, we had it so that Jesus Christ was portrayed right before your eyes. The NLT puts it this way. It says, for the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Paul saying, when I was with you, when I was in the congregation, like we are here, and we were talking about what happened with Jesus, about his life and his ministry and his death on the cross. I, it was almost as if you were right there with Jesus. You walked with Jesus for those three years. You stood there and looked at Jesus up on the cross. You heard him say, it is finished. You were the centurion who turned and looked and said, surely this was the son of God. You were the one who felt the sky go dark and the earth tremble. You were the one who rolled back the stone and saw it was empty and heard the gardener. You were right there. How would you turn aside from this risen, resurrected Lord who brings you this kind of grace? Why would you go anywhere else? The reality is that these Galatians, they had come to assume the gospel. They were once gripped by the good news, but now they had slipped into the default mode of the human heart, which is works righteousness. I feel very sure that if I gave you all a quiz, if I just took out a piece of paper and I gave out a quiz and I said, how is it that you're saved? And one of the boxes in answering, how do I get to heaven? How am I saved? And it said, Um, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. I would bet 98% of you would check this box, maybe 99 or more. I, I would feel very confident. And so on paper, we would pass the test. We would pass the quiz. But if I followed you throughout the week and I could hear your thoughts and you could hear mine and you could see my actions, 
How would we come to say, I wonder if at times we assume the gospel? Here's how you might know that you've assumed it. You might know that you've begun to assume it because you settle into comparison games. You, you look at your life, you look at the life of other people around you, you can go one or two ways. You can say, yeah, at least I'm not like those folks are. At least I don't have the problems that they have. Oh, I've got problems, but not like they do. You see, I'm doing pretty good. Or you can go to despair. You can say, I look around, everybody else in this room's got it together. But if you're at home with me, you'd know it's a hot mess. No. Another way we could see that we assume the gospel, we can become embittered. Over time, we become just cynical, angry Christians. Or we become bored by the Bible. You kind of read the words, but you're just doing it to, to check the box. You're not really, your heart's not engaged. You can assume the gospel by saying, I feel right with God only if I, and the emphasis is on you and what you have done. I know I'm okay because I did this. I served in this ministry. I helped in this way. On the other side of the coin, you could do this in a rebellious manner. You could say you've assumed the gospel if you say, I, I know I know this isn't right, but God will forgive me, so I'm going to do it anyways. Or I've got my get into heaven free card, and so now that I've got this card, I can just sort of live however I want. Or I'll show up to church on Sundays, but the rest of the week, Jesus, that belongs to me. And if any of these ring a bell for you, then you may at times assume the gospel. You may come to have lost the vision, as Paul's talking about, you've lost the vision of Jesus Christ right before you portrayed as crucified. So Paul's saying to you this morning, church on the mountain, why would you want to add anything to Jesus? Jesus plus anything equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So Paul, he's writing, he says, I want to unwitch you. You've, been, you've had this spell. I want to undo this spell. And he does this by asking rhetorical questions. Now, rhetorical questions help you get down to the truth and, and pull out the lies. And I do this with my kids all the time. My kids are misbehaving or it's time to get ready for bed and they're not really getting it. And so I'll simply say this to them. I'll ask them, hey, um, you know, who's your dad? And they'll go, dad, you're the dad. Oh, oh, I was just checking. And if I'm the dad and I've told you what we're going to do, like, okay, Dan, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll get ready. That's how rhetorical questions work. It sort of snaps you back out of this bewitchment. And so we see the first question here in verse two. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the, the, the answer is on the nose of it, isn't it? When Paul's saying, did you receive the Spirit? This is short for hand for how did you become a Christian? Remember that becoming a Christian is all-encompassing. It is to receive the Holy Spirit, it is to repent, to believe. It's all of this bound up together so that Jesus, you're believing that Jesus took your place in his perfection. He took your place as a dead man or woman. And so the question is, hey, did you become a Christian? Did you receive the Spirit by obeying Moses? Was it the Ten Commandments? Was it obeying the Levitical law? Or was it by hearing and believing what Christ did for you? And here the answer is, of course, by hearing and believing. This is what has led to our justification. Justification, this 
important, but big word. We have to get this under our belts as Christians. This is one that you got to own, justification. And typically, it's told in terms of an understanding of, of being justified is just as if I had never sinned. And, and that's true. But there's more to the story. Because just as if I'd never sinned, if you've sinned, you're now at a negative one. There's neutral, zero, negative one, you've sinned, but then there's a positive element too. So just as if I never sinned brings you from negative one to neutral, zero. But justification goes one step further because it says, it's as though you were Jesus in all of your life. You see that? So now in justification, if this is true, when you believe in Jesus, you go from negative one to positive one. God looks upon you as if you've always done perfectly well. Just as if I'd never sinned, ah, but just as if I'd always obeyed perfectly, just like Jesus. It's amazing. This is what is declared over us as Christians. And it's a big word, and I think it's really important for us to get under our belts because we see it over and over again. Even in story form, you think of the story of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son, he goes off and he spends all of the father's inheritance that was given to him. He spends it all on filthy living and he's in a wreck. He is negative one. If there ever was a negative one, he's negative two. And he decides I'm desperate. I'm going to come back. And so he comes back and he's rehearsing. Here's how I can justify myself. Here's how I can go from a negative one to a zero. So he says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to work my way back into the family. But the father sees him a long way off and the father leaves and he runs out to the son and he gives him his robe and his sandals and his ring and he slaughters the fattened calf. And it's very obvious if you read the story, this son goes from a negative one or a negative two to a plus one. That, friends, is justification. And the reason we need to hear this this morning again is because we, by nature, we want to be given something to do rather than something to believe. We, we, we by nature, are doers. And if you'll just step into the confession booth with me for a minute, I have to admit to you all, I'm a bit of a YouTube junkie. Are, are you with me? I mean, everything from how to fix my car to... Um, you know, watching somebody climb a mountain to, you know, baking an apple tart for Thanksgiving, which was delicious, by the way. I mean, all over the place. And then, you know, YouTube's figured this out. It knows me. So it says, Thomas, here's what you need. And so it's sending me um, better exercises to be doing to, for self-improvement. Um, it's sending me uh, diet plans that I need to start following. And, and, and also it's giving me all sorts of vitamins and minerals that I'm on now. Thank you, YouTube. But, but, but it's a self-betterment program. And, and not that this is wrong in and of itself, but it just reveals to my heart how quickly I'm looking for what will better my situation. What can I do? But as Christians, friends, we by nature want to be given something to do rather than something to believe. And so part of justification is for you and I to come this morning and say, before you ask the question, and it's an important question, what did, what would Jesus do? The, the idea of WWJD, which is an important question. We must ask that. That's a good thing to think through is like in this moment, if Jesus were in my shoes, what might Jesus do? But begin first with what did Jesus do? You see, what would Jesus have me do springs out of what Jesus did for me. And 
we must come again so that we are not striving in our own efforts to to do to add to our own salvation because Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so Paul, he fires this missile at the Galatians and the bomb goes off and, and, and he's dropping these rhetorical questions. But there's another one in verse three that is key. In verse three, he says, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Despite this good beginning, they began in the right place. They began with the heart in the right point. But then they had began to to shift. Recall the agitators had come in at this point. The agitators were coming in and saying, look, if you want to follow this Jesus guy, that's one thing. That's fine. But don't go too far with this thing. You, you have to be circumcised. And so they bring up the banner. The banner says, sure, Jesus is okay. But Moses, 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 these agitators coming in. And, and, and so Paul is, is phrasing it almost like this. Having trusted Christ's work to get you in, are you now trusting in your own efforts and work to keep you in? And how I wish somebody would have pulled me aside in my early Christian walk, grabbed me by the shoulders and explained this to me. It would have changed my life. I wish somebody would have grabbed me by the shoulders and would have said, look, you believe. And now it's not just a matter of you getting to work, Thomas. You got in by faith. Don't think that you're going to keep yourself in by your own efforts now. What I had learned, and nobody taught me this, but this was just inherently given to me, which is, hey, once you become a Christian, now it's up to you to make all these choices. You choose to be happy or you choose to go sin. You choose to be kind to your spouse. You choose to try harder not to lie. You try to be a better Christian. It's upon you. So how do you become a Christian? Well, by faith. How do you continue your walk as a Christian. I wish somebody would have told me, Thomas, you continue your walk by faith as well. And Paul, I think here is telling me, I was dead wrong. I was looking to be perfected in my flesh. And because of this, I was dying on the vine. Justification by faith. But here's where I missed it. Sanctification, the next step is by faith as well. Justified by faith, sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness also comes about by belief. Who are the people who really, truly want to give it all for Jesus? Who are willing to, you know, completely lay down all their rights, sacrifice their time, their energy, their efforts, everything? Are the people who really, again and again, come to, if Jesus paid it all, yes, all to him I owe. Think of the Metolius River in, in Central Oregon. The Metolius River is this incredible river that really just begins up out of nowhere. Uh, somewhere in the Cascades, all the snow's melting and it goes underground and it comes up at one point where the springs all feed into this one place and it just comes up and it's going. It's, an, it's some of the cleanest, coldest, freshest water in all of Oregon that just comes right up out of the Metolius. Now, if that spring of life water is justification and now the river's flowing, don't you and I dare think that we're going to add to this river of life by grabbing our muddy buckets of water from the shore and chucking it into the river to keep it going. When you add your bucket of muddy water to keep this thing going, what do you do? You're mucking it up. You're making it worse. No, that's not how it works. Christ gives us first, not something to do, but something to believe and not just something to believe, but someone to believe in. Our hero, our king, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one? Would you believe in him this morning? Our church is in danger of two things at all times. Our church is in serious danger of running and rebelling against God. Our church, our members here, they're in danger of running from God. But there's also another danger on the front that we need to to constantly push up against, which is resting in the fact that we're not running from God. Did you hear what I said? We can rest in the fact that we're not running from God and do this over time. That's right. I'm doing it right. You say, Thomas, I want to believe in all of this, but what about my sin? I I, I want to stop this or I want to quit being so sinfully lazy or I want to start doing that. What then? Well, C.S. Lewis is really helpful on this point. He says, look, you don't get second things by putting second things first. You only get second things by putting first things first. In other words, you can morally renovate the house, but if the foundation is rotten, then it's only a matter of time before your renovation project of like painting the outside, you sort of abandon it because the house starts collapsing in on itself. You give up on the whole thing. No, you must have God break in and redo all the foundation and the studs. And then by his spirit leading you onward, begin to see the work of renovation. And even as you work out the salvation, you see it as he at work in you. You see why Paul gets so heated? Because our salvation is a faith thing from beginning to the end. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It's faith from first to last. It's from faith to faith. We begin in faith, we end in faith, and it's faith all the way through. This is why he summarizes by asking two more questions. And we see this in verse 4 and 5. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing, there it is again, with faith? You see that? How do miracles in the spirit come to you? Was it by the law? Was it by following Moses? Was it by following the Ten Commandments? No. It was by belief. Which goes to show it is not only possible to be smart, as these men surely were very intelligent, but to be spiritually fooled. They're even persecuted. They're Christians proclaiming Christ, but being persecuted and yet fooled in their walk. And so he asked, was this in vain? Was it pointless? I think Paul would want to ask us this morning, church on the mountain, I only want to know, did you start off by rejoicing in the good news? For some of you, when Stan Wall told you this many years ago, did you begin in this good gospel grace only now to have turned aside to your own efforts? And so you're stuck leaning on your own laws, adding your own buckets. And how then do we return to the joy and peace found in faith alone? Paul says, this is how you do it. You remember. You remember Father Abraham, verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me where he says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I think that's all he really says here. Just a little background is a bit helpful to us. Recall that the Galatians, as they're facing these agitators, these agitators who had been saying, Moses, 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 Paul, in essence, he's saying, oh, you want to talk about Moses, you, you do. Well, let's rewind a little bit. Who was Moses's great, 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 great grandfather? And then all of a sudden the, the answer comes, oh, Abraham. Well, if Abraham was justified before the law, how did this all come about? Well, because it didn't come about by the law, the justification came about by faith. 
So the question, how can I receive the blessing of Abraham? Well, you just fall in line with what Father Abraham did. You believe. See, in the Old Testament, we're given a pattern. It's not the pattern of performance. Because remember, Abraham, he was kind of a snake. I mean, he, he did some great things, but he also did some foolish things. So the pattern is not performance, but it's, but it's the promise. It's not law, but it's the good news. And Paul is saying that being a Christian means primarily hearing accompanied with belief rather than cleaning up your life. So recall last week where I made it clear from Psalm 119 that the law of the Lord is of great value and worth. And yet here this morning, we're exploring the other side of all of this, seeing that the issue is not the good law. The law was good. It was holy. It was great. The issue is not the law. The issue is us. It's our hearts. It's humanity who sits under the law, which now condemns us. And Paul makes it clear. If the law and we are under it, condemns us, our only way out of this is if, to use Paul's language, Christ would take our spot, come up and receive the punishment that we deserve, that he would become accursed for us, that he would be the one who is condemned. In verses seven through nine, Paul makes it clear that the real children of Abraham are not physical descendants, but those of faith, those who were justified by faith like father Abraham. This good news was given, we might say, in seed form to Abraham prior to the law. And then then we see how the rest of this working out in Paul's mind comes in verse 10, where he says this. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, here's what, if we can just pause. He's saying the law is a full package deal. It's a full meal deal and you got to eat the whole thing. You don't get just to pull out the 10 commandments. If you want to follow the law, you got to follow the entire Mosaic law. So everything from the clothing that we wear to the food that we eat to a hair going down the sides, the whole thing, you have to follow the entire thing. It is a package deal. And he's saying here in verse 10, If you're under any of it, you're cursed by the entire thing because you don't follow the entire law. So then 11, he says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And we see 13, 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So how do we reconcile this tension? On on, on one hand, we say the law is good. And on the other hand, we say the law condemns us. And yet somehow we want to say at the same time of saying both of these things, but we are supposed to be kind and loving and honest and not steal, and not murder. So what's the answer to all these things? Okay, kids, if you're in the kids ministry class this Sunday morning, and I lead you on and I say, who is it who saves you from everything? Who is it who's provided your salvation? Who's the one way, the one answer to everything? And I do this with my kids at home and they'll say, King David. And I just, I have failed. No, friends, the answer is Jesus Christ. And this is where 
Paul goes in Galatians, isn't it? He says, we're no longer under the law of Moses. If the law is good, but the law condemns us, and we know that we are to be called to be loving and kind to one another, not steal all those things, it's because we're under a new law. You're not under Moses anymore. You are now under Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Tondaman tu Christu, which means under Jesus Christ's law, under the law of Christ. Tondaman tu Christu. You're not under Moses. And so, because of this, we have a new leader. And yes, there are many similarities. Because the law is an extension of the person of God in each covenant. Each covenant has its its commands and its rules. And because they come down from the same God, of course, in one era, in one epoch, you have things such as do not murder, do not lie, love one another. And it comes, of course, again to us under our new leader, under the law of Christ. And so he says then in, in verse 5, the, the, you know, you're, you're thinking about the law that of the spirit, it bears fruit in our lives, hence the fruit of the spirit. And he says in, in five, chapter five, verse one, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand there firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't go back to hoping in the law of Moses. Don't, don't go back to the old Testament and thinking that if I'm under this, I'll be okay. He says, no, that's a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So living under the law of Christ means we bear fruit as the people of God. Living as New Testament Christians, we're not Old Testament Christians, we're New Testament Christians under the new covenant. And therefore, now that Christ has come, things have changed. We have had the first Christmas. We we have had our eyes now aimed on Christ, not on Moses. And and this is an important passage as it relates to this, as I brought up last week. How do we bring these things together? Um, You know, are we allowed to eat clam chowder? Uh, You know, do we we need to obey the Sabbath? Well, in Colossians chapter 2 at verse 16, Paul makes this very, very clear. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These things are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You may want to write that down and go back and read it again later. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. What's he saying? Well, if you could picture Jesus, he's walking down Highway 26. He's 100 feet tall and he has a shadow. And the sun is on the backside of him and that shadow is being cast over our way. Now, pretend we can't see Christ coming, but we see his shadow hit the parking lot out here. I think we would get pretty excited. Here he is. His shadow's coming. His shadow's coming. He must be coming soon. And the shadow is the pointer to the reality. But once the once Jesus were to actually walk into our, our parking lot, I would think you're really goofy if you're over there hugging his shadow. He's here. Go hug him. And that's how Paul's understanding the law was the shadow. But now that the reality has come, don't go back to hugging Moses' law. That was a pointer forward. And now that we have Christ, now that he has come, now we have a a, a clinging to the reality, which is Jesus. I, I have a friend who's, he's a Messianic Jew, and we've had interesting conversations. And he, at one point, he, he made it, he, he's very kind, very gentle, 
but he kind of poked at something. He made it clear. I was in sin because I was eating pork. And, he, you know, I, I was going, what? I, at the time, I hadn't really wrestled with all this. And he says, yeah, you're, you're in sin, you know. Um, go, go read the Old Testament. It's, it's there in the Old Testament. We're not to eat pork. And as I learned and understood these things, I, I, my response was, uh, it was uh, an issue. We were unclean and eating pork, but not anymore. Christ has declared it clean. Go read the New Testament. And then he says, well, you know, the reason pork's an issue is because it was unclean. It's, it's not healthy. I said, no, 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 no. That's not the reason. Friends, the Lord asked the, the Jews to do many, many things. And it wasn't out of a, just a matter of help per se. Primarily, it was to set them apart as distinct. So, the clothing that they wore, to the festivals that they celebrated, to their diets, to all, all of these things were bound up with marking off a particular people that were different from the Gentiles. But the gospel has changed something because the gospel has now come in and said that the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Greeks has been torn down, which means when, and you go read this in Acts, in Acts 10, you, you, you see when this dividing wall of hostility is broken down, the things that divided us, that marked us off differently are also torn down. So we think of the fact that um, all foods have been declared clean. When I eat my clam chowder, which I love, which I might just go do tonight after service, it reminds me I'm rejoicing in the gospel. God has broken down the wall of hostility. I'm a Gentile and I'm in too. And you're in too because of Jesus Christ. And this is the fruitful path of faith in Christ that puts us under the law of Christ. And it's what we celebrate here in the Advent season. To be honest, I do love the candles. I like the poinsettias and the Christmas lights and the cups of hot cider. I, I love all these things. I love this time of year, but it's not because of the sentimentality of it all. That's not why I like it. I, I, I primarily like this time because my soul needs the reminder every year. This is where strivings cease. Now that Christ the babe has come, this is where my soul that says, I got to be given something to do can go, no, no, no. Believe he's come. Believe that he did what he said he has done and that you are free in Christ. When Christ the babe came, he killed the hostility. He killed the letter of the law that was killing me. And he became killed on my behalf. Re recently, I was able to catch the history of the song in Christ alone. And I was listening to um, Keith Getty and Stuart Townend. They were talking about how this, this landmark hymn had come about. And uh, Keith Getty, he wrote the melody and then he's, he, he uh, is playing it before S Stuart Townend. He said, ooh, I really, this is rich. This is meaningful. And so he began to say, this melody is somewhat timeless and I want to write some timeless lyrics to this. So he says, I, I started to pen, um, my hope alone is in Christ. And then later on, Getty says, no, 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 begin with Christ. And so he goes, oh, in Christ alone is where my hope is found. So he changed the lyrics and he said the song for him was a good reminder. As he was penning these lyrics, he, keeps, he kept saying, I, I know where I want my strivings to be. I, I, I tend to want to strive to prove that I'm good enough, that God should accept me. But he says, this is where strivings cease. That's in the first verse. And as, as he was reflecting upon in Christ alone, all the gospel fullness comes to him. It brings him towards the very end where he's saying no guilt in life. 
No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And I wondered this morning if if this is exactly what you needed to hear. No guilt in life for Christ has paid it all. And, And no fear in death because what happened with Christ's resurrection will happen to you who believe here. And then the the verse ends by him saying, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand until he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Because church, Jesus plus anything equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Would you pray with me? Father, we long to live for your glory, to see you high and lifted up, to know that in Christ alone is where our hope is found. It will not be found in the gifts. It will not be found in the good news come to us from earth, but from above. And I pray, Lord, that that would settle again on our hearts here this month, this week, and this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.